0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Dean is being mobbed as our ruleful draw. And out of center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in, arm in arm. Tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. foul territory. The game is over, and the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years, and now they can really cheer. Now the pitch, swung on, lined to deep left field. It is goal. You should see the celebration. The Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two run homer down the left field line, clearing the 19 foot wall. We are tied at six. This is our tribe history presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello, Tribe fans, and welcome to another episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. On this episode of the podcast, we are going to talk about the Indians Team Hall of Fame. Now, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about, so I'm very excited to put it in podcast form. And I know I have alluded to it in previous episodes, so we're going to get to it now. And in order to do that, we are going to throw it back to the early 1950s, when a gentleman named Marsh Samuel, who was a PR man that joined the tribe in 1947, and also made his mark in the business by creating the very first media guide in baseball. He was sitting around with a few other front office employees coming up with an idea. Now, years later, he had recounted this creation, and he said, I don't know, or I don't remember exactly what happened, but we were probably sitting around shooting the bull when the idea came up. One of the Indians' owners, Nate Dolan, got the ball rolling since the ball club paid for it. And so this idea was born. Create a team hall of fame that recognizes Cleveland's greats and includes those players who may not be Cooperstown bound, but hold a special place in Clevelanders hearts. And again, this was a a new idea because there hadn't been one in the major leagues. So Cleveland was really at the forefront of creating a, a team specific hall of fame in baseball. On August 21st, 1951, Fans were alerted to the new voting system under the headline, Here's a chance to pick all-time Indian team. The voting was set to last for only a week, ending on August 27th. The paper said, Voting will close at midnight August 27th to permit final tabulation in time for invitations to be sent to the selected players to attend the Cleveland-St. Louis game at the stadium September 2nd again let that sink in you're planning an all-time indians roster voting and you know bring all these guys in in somewhat of a two-week span again that's insane a for anyone that's uh ever done you know planning for any event knowing that that kind of timetable especially in 1951 where you don't necessarily have all the uh modern you know orbits.com and this and that but um, so, yeah, they had this set up where fans were going to vote quickly and then they were going to get these players to Cleveland. Um, when we do our Hall of Fame now, that voting is all done before the season even starts, so you can plan the event to get you know fans excited about a Hall of Fame induction. Since my time with the Indians, I've been a part of, I think it's just the one... Um, Team Hall of Fame, which is when we had Charlie jameson and Tommy Frank Robinson and Albert Bell, and the planning that goes into all that to maximize having these players around is uh, is, is takes a, a while. So again, it's one of those things where it's a bit baffling when you look at it and and think you're going to fly all these greats out here in a week, get them, you know, hopefully they're not doing anything and they're able to attend, but. That's what it was like in August of 1951. The winners of the voting, there's was one uh, for each infield position, three outfielders, and two pitchers, were all to have color portraits made that would become the main exhibit in the projected baseball museum that was set to open in 1952. The Plain Dealer let fans have some options. They uh, had some of their sports writers come up with players for each position that they thought were worthy. And they had a note about the list that said, the above list purposely was restricted to modern baseball period. Also eliminated are any tribe athletes currently on the Cleveland active list or any other major or minor league club. So you weren't going to find, you know, Bob Feller or Larry Doby or, or those guys on the list because they were still playing in the league. And at first base, they had options of Stovall, Burns, and Trotsky. Second base, they had Lajue, Wambi, Mac. Fonseca. Third base, they had Bradley, Gardner, Keltner, Cam, shortstop, uh, Turner, Chapman, Sewell. And then the outfield, they had Flick, Bay, Grainy, Speaker, Jameson, Smith, Birmingham, Averill, Vosmick, and Jackson. Behind the plate, they had Clark, O'Neal, and Sewell. And then for the pitchers, they listed Cy Young, Andy Joss, Kowalewski, Yuli, Farrell, and Harder. When the votes were tallied, the fans selected Steve O'Neill as their all-time catcher. Hal Trotsky was at first for the selections. They selected Nap Lajue at second, Joey Sewell at shortstop, Ken Keltner at third, and for pitchers, they had Cy Young and Mel Harder. In the outfield, they had Earl Averill, Tris Speaker, and the infamous Shoeless Joe Jackson. That's right, and that's one of my... uh, go-to points of our Hall of Fame is that Shoeless Joe Jackson is in the club's Hall of Fame. So I think that's a unique aspect to our Hall of Fame because, again, Shoeless Joe, if you know about uh, baseball, you most likely know that Shoeless Joe is not allowed in the Baseball Hall of Fame because of that 1919 Black Sox scandal. But nevertheless, Cleveland fans still felt warmly about him and wanted him in their Hall of Fame. And you know, after all, some of the numbers Joe put up when he was a member of the tribe are numbers that are never going to be topped, so it made sense to have Joe in the Hall of Fame. And of all the total votes, Trist Speaker, the Gray Eagle, emerged with the most votes. He had 3,744, so the Gray Eagle was still uh, number one in fans' hearts, and what I love about Speaker, too, is he was like a Bob Feller before Feller insofar as he was around a lot in the area. He had a house, I think it was uh, Shaker Heights. Um, I have it on my map, my uh, eventual Indians uh, baseball history drive driving tour. Uh, and Speaker had this house. And long story short is he was fixing the gutter or doing some home repair and fell off a ladder and almost died. I think he fractured his skull or did something like pretty bad, Um, but ended up surviving. But nevertheless, Speaker stayed around the Cleveland area and, you know, fans remembered him. There's a great picture of Feller warming up before the 48 world series. And sure enough, there's Speaker standing on the, by the fence looking kind of over his shoulder and, he was around, and, again, fans fans loved him. Now, second in voting was the Tuscarawas County native, Cy Young, who uh, emerged with 3,272. And uh, if you know about Cy, his best years in Cleveland we were with the Spiders, and he came back to play with the tribe. Um, but, nevertheless, local guy, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. These players were all invited to the September 2nd game to be part of the festivities. Uh, unfortunately, and you know you still run into this today, guys were unable to attend. Uh, among those who wouldn't make it were Nat Hal Trotsky, Shoeless Joe, and Steve O'Neill. Now, O'Neill wasn't able to make it because he was busy managing the Boston Red Sox, and they had a season to finish. The paper also noted that Shoeless Joe had been ill And he wired that his doctor would not permit him to make the trip uh, from Greenville, South Carolina. Now, I have to imagine that was about the only thing that was going to keep Shoeless Joe from being inducted and coming to the ballpark. Because I have to imagine that meant a lot to him to be uh, recognized for his time in Cleveland. But he was facing some serious health uh, issues. And for Knapp... He was, the paper said, Lajue, living in Florida, said he would not be able to make the trip because of his wife's illness. Uh, She eventually passed away a couple years after that. And finally, Hal Trotsky, he couldn't make it simply because he had business to attend to. So I imagine if this voting had taken place before the season had started, perhaps, uh, you know, instead of having a one-week notice, Hal may have been able to push his business aside and, and make the trip. But nevertheless, that's what you get, I suppose, for a, a hasty Hall of Fame induction. So on that September 2nd day, Cy Young, Mel Harder, Joey Sewell, Ken Keltner, Tris Speaker, and Earl Averill were all in attendance. And Averill coming all the way from uh, Sonomish, Washington. I think that's how you say it, Sonomish. Yeah, he's got the, that interesting uh, hometown to be at the festivities, though. One of the more interesting um, parts of that September 2nd game or one of the weird factoids is that for the first 23,000 fans who arrived early enough, they were fortunate to receive individually wrapped pieces of cake in honor of the 50th anniversary of the American League. So I know there's a lot of people that collect promotional items. I can't imagine any pieces of cake have survived since 1950. I'd hope they, uh, I'd hope they haven't survived because those are probably pretty gnarly. So, um, and the sad part was there was actually extra cake because only around 21,000 people attended the game. So there was a bunch of, maybe they were like little Debbie's. I don't know, but I can't imagine. i tried to mention that once uh to our our promotional people hey we gave a cake in 1951 but for many reasons that just wouldn't fly and before the game the there was a group of little leaguers that marched from public square to the ballpark and around the diamond to circle the field as the hall of famers were gathering and there was a a fun little story as many of these little leaguers, they doffed their cap, which ended resulted in a, one of the hall of famers responding. You don't have to do that. Kids We're not dead yet. It's just one of those things too. I think that connects to the, uh, present to the past because we still have so many of these, you know, pregame marches around the, uh, field while players are warming up. And, uh, it's one of those neat things to see when these kids are walking by. They catch a glimpse of Tito or, you know, just being on the field. It's always fun to watch, but definitely something that's been going on on forever. And on that front page of the sports section of the PD, there's a great photo, and I'll have to uh, tweet it out, of Trish Speaker, Cy Young, Joey Sewell, Ken Keltner, and Earl, as well as Mel Harder, and there's a... a old photographer in the picture as well and they're all gathered together dressed in suits and you know the stories that you could probably get from those guys just being a fly on the wall I mean all that that history of uh, of baseball obviously you have uh what is that four hall of famers in there Mel Harder should probably be in the hall of fame as well uh I digress and each player was given a gold mantle clock with an inscription that lists their name, position, induction date. And what's pretty neat is Earl Averill's clock still exists. I was fortunate enough to get in touch with some of his his family, and they still have that clock. Uh, I'm not sure if it works, but I've seen pictures. So it's always great to see, uh, or at least to know that these items still exist and. Uh, are well-treasured and preserved. So I was really excited to see photos of that once that, you know, I was, the, the young lady I was talking to said, oh, yeah, we still have that. Um, I had asked for pictures, and she sent them my way, so it's always fun to see those things. And for Earl, he had this to say. He said, I came a long way for this, but I wouldn't have missed it for anything. I am deeply honored. Again, these guys really appreciated, it and you uh, know, it's just a great time for fans and players alike. If you're interested in the outcome of that September second game, and I feel like all these games I end up finding for whatever reason, they're always playing St. Louis. You know, the, whenever I look for these this day in history, I always seem to find a St. Louis Browns game. But nevertheless, fans attending this game were treated to a third inning home run barrage. Harry Simpson hit an inside the park to run home run. Then Al Rosen hit a home run. And then Luke Easter made it back to back to back. And this was a 5-1 to one Indians victory over St. Louis. Uh, the tribe was still in a pennant hunt that came down to about the last week of the season. So it was a, a big win and a very festive day. Now, three months later, Shoeless Joe Jackson was dead. One of the writers reminisced about him. Gordon Cobbledick mentioned the Tribe Hall of Fame vote. He said, A few months ago, when Cleveland baseball writers and sports editors drafted a list of candidates, for which the fans of Northern Ohio named Cleveland's all-time baseball club, the question of whether or not Jackson's name should be submitted was loudly debated. The writer's decision was that it should be. It was felt that he had paid for whatever wrongs he had done, if any, and that he deserved recognition among the city's sports immortals. The fans must have agreed, for they elected Jackson to Cleveland's Hall of Fame by a whopping majority. It's gratifying now to know that Shoeless Joe received the honor before he died. It was little enough after his years under a ban which he always believed to be unjust. In that following year of 1952, the actual museum began to take shape, and on August 15th of that year, it was announced that the museum would open to the public that night. Located between sections 11 and 12 of the old ballpark, the Hall of Fame featured colored sketches of the 10 players selected by the fans. In addition, there is a full-color mural of Old League Park, two montages recalling memorable events in Indians history, plus pictures of many other stars of the last 50 years. Other features are a graph showing how the Indians finished down through the years a showcase of three mannequins dressed in 1901 1920 and 1948 uniforms and a collection of such memorabilia as bats balls gloves and old world series tickets and there was also a an oversized rotating baseball that featured signatures of all the hall of famers so you know in my shoes i'm wondering oh they mentioned bats and balls and gloves and you know, what, what particular items are these? There's, um, you know, I, we have a few pictures later on of the uniform mannequins uh, with the 1901, the 1920, and 48 uniforms. Now, were those replicas? Obviously, the 48 one was probably a, an original because they were only a few years removed from that, but, you know, was that original 1920 uniform from one of the players. The 1901 uniform was probably a, a, a replica but nevertheless, you know, what was in there that opening day and what were they able to get in the collection? And the museum was designed as an S-shaped room, which allowed fans to enter the one door and kind of wind their way around until they exited. And when you walked to the door, they were greeted with a wooden sculpture of an 1800s-looking ball player that was made out of wood. Ed McAuley, McAuley wrote... No other baseball park in the country has anything which may be compared with the Hall of Fame at the stadium. In the spirit of their concern with the present and their plans for the future, the club officials have made this monument to the past as colorful, as tasteful, as interesting, and as expensive as their own research and their decorator skill possibly could make it. I predict that it will become a showplace to which Clevelanders proudly will bring their visitors. I'm sure it was a show place for people to bring visitors for those next few years as it was still shiny and new, and the ball club was playing great baseball, you know, going 1954 when they made history. Um, However, that was not necessarily always the case. And as the years wore on, so did elections as they continued. With 1954, there was another Red Sox manager that was uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame. Now, the club was able to wait till the Red Sox came to Cleveland, so Lou Boudreau could be inducted into the Indians Hall of Fame. And then, in 1957, Bob Feller and Bill Bradley were voted in. Bradley had just passed uh, before this, and his widow was present, or presented with the award. And Feller had just recently retired. In 1960, Bob Lemon was elected. 1963 saw Elmer Flick inducted to both the Cleveland and the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So sometimes a player getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame kind of forced the hand of Cleveland to induct them into their own. Another interesting induction was in 1965 when Satchel Paige was elected to the Indians Hall of Fame. In honor of the occasion, the Indians front office bought Satchel new luggage as he was a traveling man. He was always traveling to play baseball. And the amazing thing was that during his induction, which took place between a doubleheader, he decided for the second game he wanted to go to the bullpen to watch the second game. And he said, I feel more comfortable here, he was quoted as saying, and he joined Gary Bell. Uh, and he told him that, giving him advice, he said, there's nothing to this pitching business. Just take the ball and throw it where you want to. Throw strikes. Home plate don't move. So if you are aware of Satchel Paige, that's just... One of those great quotes that Satch often uh often had. I know we have one in the concourse underground where uh it's that famous quote where he says, you know, don't look back because something might be gaining on you. And in nineteen sixty six, Stan Kovalesky, Larry Doby, and Jim Hegan were all in the ducted together. Hegan was with the Yankees at the time, but Covey and Doby were both out of baseball. Um Doby, while talking to reporters, though, mentioned how he wanted to get back into the game. He said, I'd like to be back in some capacity, in player personnel, coaching, or managing, but I'd never had an offer. And then Hegan said, no, I didn't expect this. I got a big kick out of it. A lot of great ballplayers haven't been in it. How can you expect it? And then in 1972, it was the final induction with early win, and again, after that, the inductions just kind of dried up. And during this time, too, you start to see stories about some of the artifacts that were donated or were in the uh, museum. And one of them came about in 1966. There was a gentleman named Leroy Miller who was a member of the grounds crew who fielded a ball off a Sam Chapman's bat during the first game of a doubleheader on July 10th, 1947. The game in question was Don Black's no-hitter, now, later, when the players returned to Cleveland, Miller had the ball autographed by Connie Mack, Bob Feller, because why not Feller on there, Al Simmons, Lou Boudreau, Joe Gordon, Ken Keltner, and Don Black. Miller said, I figure it would be better off where everyone could see it. Maybe someday I can go see it too, because he had donated it to the, the team in the, the museum that was at the ballpark. And when the team started to falter in the stands and attendance dwindled, the Hall of Fame inductions dried up and stopped. So as I mentioned, early Win was the last one in, in 72. And around that time is when the museum was removed. In one article, it was stated that when Nick Malletti came in, he was looking for ways to generate money. And since the museum was free, it was closed in 72. Gabe Paul later said that it was replaced with a concession stand to sell novelty items. And I think eventually it was turned into the Diamond Club or or some special area for season ticket holders. There's a great article that appears in the 1988 plane dealer. Uh, Peter Jeddick recounts what the museum was like and lists some of the additional artifacts that were possibly lost. And this is where the history detective hat of mine gets put on. I think it's fascinating to try to track these things down if possible. But uh, Jeddick says that in the cleveland news sports editor ed bang listed some of the items on display as part of a pamphlet that the company that built the hall of fame published advertising the hall of fame now i've never been able to find any sort of pamphlet and i've actually been in contact with peter but uh no luck on that i've checked quite a few places so if you happen to have that pamphlet i would love to see that but it lists a ball from bob feller's third no hitter in 1951 and the ball he used in getting the 348th strikeout in 1946, then a season record. Also, the bat used by Elmer Smith, who hit the first Grand Slam home run in World Series history in 1920, the bat used by Larry Lajewe when he won the batting championship in 1904, and the ball used by Bill Wambi in in executing the only unassisted triple play in World Series history. Now, a few of those items, like Lajewe's bat, is traced back to a private collector right now, and there's a story about Charlie Sheen having Wombies ball now. Again, if you listen to the podcast when we talk about Ray Chapman and the death ball, the idea of provenance of you know chain of custody is this the ball? You know, once you throw a ball into the crowd or into a bucket of other baseballs, you it's nearly impossible to confirm that this was the ball. It loses that uh, that chain of custody there, so. Whether or not, I think it was up at auction not too long ago, you know, and there's always these, these interesting, uh, uh, well, we had the paperwork, but it got lost, or it was told to us to be, you know, it's one of those things that as a uh, museum professional, it makes you kind of uneasy to, you know, look at it the, the right way. And the article also mentions that Harold Bossard, the old groundskeeper, was responsible for maintaining the collection. He said uh, the items were stored above the clubhouse when it first closed, but then things began to disappear. He recalled. The article states that many believe that local sports historian Tom Eakins collected the bulk of the items for his Ohio Baseball Hall of Fame museum located in Toledo. Eakin however, claims otherwise. All I have is Tris Speaker's pants and a few plaques. He said. Uh, you know, I would I'm curious what Tris Speaker's pants. You know, which pair they were, but anything with you know tied to speakers would be phenomenal to see. I'm not sure what plaques those were in reference to. Um, And then a few items found their way to Cooperstown. There's a Boudreaux and Feller uniform that were from uh, um, the museum, as well as a ball supposedly from the sixth game of the World Series. And then there's a few other items that stayed with the club that we still have, but nothing as neat as... Those items described, obviously. I mean, the Wambi's triple play ball or or anything related to Feller or Speaker or Boudreaux. Um, and I think possibly in this area too is where the 1948 pennant once uh, lived because there's photos of the grounds crew pulling out the 48 pennant in around 1960s for uh, an event. I think it was uh, an Ask Hal where they asked, uh, hey, where's the pennant that Bill Vec buried and there was a big hubbub and in 2016 I think we got that question quite a few times about where's the pennant uh and um you know it also goes to the point where if you have um you know a Fenway or or Wrigley or somewhere where a team has been for 100 years or more there's always more chances where you can find items lost in, in, you know, different areas of the ballpark versus when the club moved from League Park to Municipal Stadium to Progressive Field, stuff gets lost in the shuffle. Things get pitched in a, when you're you know, trying to move. So who knows what was where and where a lot of these items wandered off to. But nevertheless, there are at least there were some incredible items in the, the Team Hall of Fame. When the club moved to Jacobs Field, now Progressive Field, there was a small museum uh, in the team shop area. If you walk into the team shop and never notice that by the hats, there's that ornate uh, entranceway. That area had display cases and we there was a lot of replica uniforms. And there were some real items as well. And what was neat, at least Someone had the foresight that knew Eddie Murray was getting close to 3,000 hits, so I think there was a few things saved from that. The first pitch balls from the game against Pittsburgh and then against Seattle were both saved, so there was always that intention to save items and put them on display. However, the museum didn't last long. I'm not sure when it uh, was taken out of the progressive field, but I've only seen a handful of pictures and a few uh, video clips of that. Again, though, there were no Hall of Fame inductions until 2006 when Heritage Park was created and a new induction class came about in 2006, kind of getting um, the backlog of some of these great players that were, were glossed over when you didn't have these inductions. So we do have the oldest team Hall of Fame in baseball, which I think is uh, a point of pride uh, for the organization. But that being said, there's just so many uh, unanswered questions, especially, you know, what happened to these items? Where did they end up? Are they still around, or did they get pitched? Um, And I'm always curious to see things pop up. And, again, if if that pamphlet exists or if there's photographs, and we only have a handful of photographs in there of those mannequins, but... Uh, I'd love to see, and I have to imagine there's pictures. There's enough people, I think, that still remember that Hall of Fame, but one of those great histories and mysteries, I guess, of uh, the Indians' Hall of Fame and where it ended up. And as we move forward, we don't have a team museum per se. We do have our feller exhibit in the Terrace Club, but we also are trying to get our history out So if you're in the corner bar, I'd like to display items out there um, as well as Tribe Fest. We've done things in the past of displaying artifacts because we are always saving items um, from the season, whether it's, you know, in the corner bar right now, I did before the pandemic hit. We we have Robo's jersey from last year when it was the first time we wore red uniform since the 70s. And he won a, a gold glove that year. So, you know, having this, uniform represents a lot of history and hopefully in 50 years fans will be able to enjoy that or tyler naquin's inside the park walk off uh, jersey we have that and a lot of items from the 22 game win streak so um, hoping we can get fans to enjoy those items and uh you know they tell the story of the cleveland indians history so, if you know anything about the Hall of Fame, or have any great photos or recollections of it, I would love to hear more about it. Uh, you maybe remember seeing some of those artifacts, or you know, walking through and seeing the jerseys. Uh, I'd love to hear that. Or if you have any photos, that would be even better. But um, it's just one of those ongoing searches of where did these great artifacts go and Hopefully, you know, they're still in existence somewhere and someone's taking care of them. And that's the story of the Cleveland Indians Team Hall of Fame and Old Museum back at Municipal Stadium. And the uh, Team Hall of Fame being the first in Major League Baseball and the oldest continued, uh, you know, with a little bit of a hiatus in there, Team Hall of Fame. So, again, I, I mentioned that's one of my favorite things to talk about because there's such a mystery to this because it housed such illustrious and one-of-a-kind items that if we still had or if we knew where they were, would just be so much fun to see, and I, I think fans would get uh, enjoyment out of it as well. So uh, I, I love talking about it, and hopefully it jars someone's memory because I love hearing about it and trying to put the pieces back together. And with that, I hope everyone has a nice holiday weekend. If you're looking to relax, I recommend listening to all of my previous podcasts. I think this is number 14. Um, So if you've missed any of them, what a great way to relax. Put on some headphones and listen to baseball history as we're gearing up for this uh, historic 60-game season coming down the the pipe so um thank you all for listening and go tribe you've been listening to our tribe history presented by progressive with your host indians team historian jeremy fedor